there are things about missions work that I don't think a lot of people understand. And it's tolerated a whole lot more than I think it would be if the missionaries and the organizations that send those missionaries didn't provide the levels of help that they provide in some areas. We're talking about going into places that already have established cultures and ways of doing things. And now these pasty white people from some place that they've never been show up in their midst and say, uh, 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 nope, this is not the way that you need to think about this. You need to think about it this way. Now imagine it's you. Start really looking at what missions work is and what it really accomplishes. Start looking objectively at the real impact missions has on impoverished nations and cultures. It's important to understand what it does to the people it touches and that there are better and far more selfless ways to help people in need. Welcome to Unbound, a podcast for new atheists and lifetime atheists, ex-evangelicals, truth seekers and free thinkers. There is life after faith. And life here is good. It's time for a new perspective. And a better conversation. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And And it's it's time time to get unbound. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I don't know if there are any words in the New Testament that have done more damage than that. Mm. That's Matthew 28, 19, reading from the NIV. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And tonight we're talking about missions, home missions, overseas missions, outreaches, and more. Let me tell you something. If you've been lured into throwing away your intellect at Bible college to pursue full-time ministry, there really isn't a more Fuck all way to guarantee never having a normal life than deciding and proceeding to become a full-time missionary. Marvel as you're asked to break the law and risk your life for the sake of the gospel. Marvel still as your sponsored churches fail for the fifth time to raise the funds you need to continue your work while you and your family live in a hotel because you literally have nothing here. And chances are the people you're serving would rather you weren't. That's the real kicker. And we'll get into this and much more in a few minutes. But first, instant karma may not be a thing, but COVID is. And if you're a shyster preacher or false prophet downplaying it, it's probably going to get you. Shell, tell us a little bit more about that as we start our Christians Behaving Badly segment for this week. Well, it seems to be a trend among loudmouth anti-vax preachers screaming about COVID. So here's our first segment. Well, 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 if it isn't the consequences of your own actions. Here's just a few Christians who have behaved badly seeing those consequences right now. Christian radio host Jimmy DeYoung Sr., who has spent the whole of the pandemic spouting misinformation about COVID, has died of something? What could it possibly be? I don't know. Chinese nibble torture? (laughs) If you guessed COVID, you'd be right. Uh, I was only off by a little. A little bit. While he was a staunch anti-vaxxer, he did reassure that it was not the mark of the beast. Oh, there's that. At least he stopped a little shorter than some of his crackpot colleagues did. Yeah. But how many of his flock did he deceive by the constant flow of false information flowing out of his mouth? And anti-vaxxer Catholic Cardinal Raymond Burke, who has spent the last year downplaying the seriousness of COVID is currently in the hospital with COVID, on a ventilator. (laughs) Of course he is. He used his pulpit and his voice to drag other Catholics into illness and possibly death. 
it would be poetic justice if it weren't so stupid. True. And one more? One more. One more of these idiots? And this is not all of them. It's just the ones that I felt like putting in this segment. There's just so many. It's amazing how many there actually are. Yeah. And how it just doesn't seem to be changing anything. No, it doesn't. Prophetic minister Wanda Alger has canceled her prophetic mentoring weekend because COVID, of course. She's got it. She's currently treating herself at home with her severely immunocompromised son. Isn't that just lovely? It's great. Yeah, just great. Incidentally, another one of her theories is that remote-controlled mini-robot rats spread the pandemic to last past Easter Sunday to prevent Christians going to church. You've got to be kidding me. No. I mean, I, I keep acting surprised. This really doesn't surprise me because these people love conspiracy theories. They love they conspiracy. They eat them up. So, of it's course, crazy. this is something that's going to get the attention of at least a few of these idiots. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Wander Alger really does make me angry because she's hardly pretending to care that her severely immunocompromised son is going to catch this. She's currently asking for thoughts and prayers. Oh, that's, yeah. That'll that'll, that'll definitely take care of everything. Her immunocompromised kid. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking that these crackpots are getting what they deserve. But the kid? Yeah, kid doesn't deserve this. I have to wonder what it will do to her if her child gets this and dies of it right will it make a difference or will she sit there and make every excuse in the book for why she was still right yeah because i could see it oh yeah i could totally fucking see it no that's just a short list yes of the people that this is affecting and how it's affecting them and how all of their words just keep backfiring on them about this and yet their messaging is still strong and it's still out there to the point where I can't get away from it just shopping for meat. I mean, you should have heard the conversation that I heard going on in one of our local stores this afternoon. But uh, I have to tell you, I really wasn't expecting what's Mm -hmm. coming next here. But this is actually a pretty interesting story. So let's have it. Okay. My second story today is something that you could probably title Christians Behaving Badly in the Past. And you it literally involved, could. Yeah. Yeah. And it involves some people that obviously no one expected. The Spanish Inquisition. I hope people understand that. Yeah, I hope so. We just used it on them twice. Yes. I hope they get it. <laughs> the Spanish Inquisition, which spanned 400 years from 1478 to 1834, was created to hunt down and root out all heresies, including blasphemy and witchcraft. The total number of people prosecuted was 150,000, including thousands of clergy, and the number killed over that time was around 5,000. The Inquisition took place over the whole of Spain and all Spanish territories and had the full backing of the Catholic Church. And you know, let's keep in mind that these are official numbers that may or may not be accurate. Yeah, And a lot of people think that those numbers are way higher. Yeah, well, you have to take the inquisitors into question because sometimes they would advertise their services Mm -hmm. by telling you how many people they'd gotten killed. 16 of the most affected territories are in modern-day Spain, and a question occurred to a professor of economics. 
Does the Spanish Inquisition have a tangible modern impact? Are there economic repercussions to religious persecution? A new scholarly article by three economists tries to answer this very question. Here is a quote. In municipalities where the Spanish Inquisition persecuted more citizens, incomes are lower, trust is lower, and education is markedly lower than in other comparable towns and cities. No one expects the Spanish Inquisition to still matter today, but it does. There it is again. Yeah, oh, they used it in their own paper. Yeah, it's, that's great. So they collected data from all across Spain and used records from 67,000 trials held between 1480 and 1820. They found various economic indicators for wealth, education, and public trust were markedly lower in the most severely persecuted territories of Spain in comparison with territories that were less persecuted or not persecuted at all. The Inquisition's persecution of perceived heretics is only one example of authoritarian intervention on people's private lives, while the suffering of the accused and convicted is the single most important result of persecution. Our results suggest its shadows can be long indeed. In the case of the Spanish Inquisition, the local level of persecution continues to influence economic activity and basic attitudes some 200 years after its abolition, undermining trust, reducing investments in human capital, and impoverishing the hardest-hit areas. You know, I'm looking at just the last couple of paragraphs here and realizing just how well it flows into what we're going to be talking about tonight yeah. because they targeted the poor yeah. and the needy. And, 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 yeah, it was very anti-Semitic as well. Well, yeah. Yeah. But what I'm zeroing in on here is the types of people yeah. that these things were aimed at. Yeah. And it really does segue well into some of the things that we're going to be talking about as they relate to missions. But before we get into that, just want to let everybody know that our Patreon is live at patreon.com slash network. And starting at $5 a month, if you can lend us your support in just that small way, just over a dollar an episode, it will really help us out. It will help us to keep this thing going and keep making it better because that is where we want to be. We want to be better and we want to be reaching more people and we want to be seeing more people get and stay unbound. So you can help us with your dollars in that regard. And you can also help us by leaving some five-star ratings leaving some reviews, sharing your favorite episodes, especially on social media. If you're in the middle of a conversation where it's relevant, just share out the link to one of our shows and let people know that we're there. Let someone new know about the show this week and just keep doing what you're doing. Keep getting what you need. And as always, we are very, very grateful for everyone who comes back every week, for the people who interact with us on social media and in other ways. We are really appreciative of the support that you're giving us whether it's by means of support or just because you're too damn curious about what we're going to say next, <laughs> we're glad that you're here and we hope that you'll keep coming back. And if you have the means to help us out again, patreon.com slash unbound podcast network is where you're going to go to lend that support right now. Let's get right into our main topic. about missions and why in many cases it does a lot more harm than good to both the people group and to the missionary. Now, the first thing that I thought of when I decided to tackle this subject 
kind of exists on the fringes of evangelicalism because the first thing I thought of was the musical The Book of Mormon. Mm -hmm. Not The Book of Mormon, the musical The Book of Mormon, which centers around a missions assignment in Uganda. Now, just a quick disclaimer before I get too far into this. I've heard people say it in the past, and it even came up in my research, where people think that there is a racist overtone to this particular musical. And on the surface, I can see where that might be an opinion. But from this one white man's perspective, and you can tell me if I'm wrong and tell me why, but I think that the entire thing is more of just a huge lampoon of how the Latter-day Saints Church has always viewed black people. The content, in my opinion, isn't racist. It just shines a light on the racism that exists in the organization. And again, that's one white guy's opinion. So someone else out there may see it differently than I do. But I mean, when you're looking at lyrics to songs like, I believe that in 1978, God changed his mind about black people. That to me is a lampoon. It's not a shot at that people group. But that's just me. So the story centers around these missionaries, Kevin Price and Arnold Cunningham. Everyone is getting their two-year mission assignments because that's what they do in the Mormon church. They send you off on a mission for usually it's about two years. And everyone's getting all these stateside locations and they're going off to have fun with their with their missions. Well, where do these guys get sent? Uganda. And there are reasons why at least one of these guys has been sent to Uganda. As the story goes, the villagers really have no interest in the religion. The missionaries that have been stationed there in the past have failed to baptize a single Ugandan. And in Mormon terms, that's a problem. Yeah. So these guys arrive. They start the whole meet and greet process with the people in the village. And they're taught probably one of the most important terms in these people's vocabulary, Hasadiga Ibuai, which translates literally to fuck you, God. So, honestly, it's a sentiment that may be presented in this context in a humorous way, but it's not that far off when it comes to the people that have encountered missionaries overseas. Most of the time, these people aren't even wanted where they go. And the simple message of the song is, what the fuck has God done for us lately? Mm. And that's, as far as I'm concerned, that really is a legitimate question that I don't think that any missionary in the mission field has a solid answer for. But one of the guys, Arnold Cunningham, has had this pen shot for making shit up like his entire life. This has been his thing. He's been scolded for it many, many times. And now he finds himself halfway around the world and trying to convince these people to adopt his religion. So what does he do? Um, he starts pulling all kinds of shit from pop culture, particularly sci-fi and fantasy. A lot of Star Trek, Star Wars, and Lord of the Rings going into this. And like literally details from these sources. And all of a sudden, the people are interested. All of a sudden, somebody wants to be baptized. It's actually a pretty major thing. And it gets the attention of some people stateside who come to, uh, who, who come to observe. And the villagers put on this big play in front of all the visiting elders that is supposed to be the story of Joseph Smith. And it has all of this extraneous shit just running through it. And these guys are just, they're like completely and totally appalled. But the thing that Arnold Cunningham uses to kind of quell the situation and the point that he tries to make is that, well, you know what? We're finally making some progress here. 
And if it helps people, it cannot be wrong. Now, my question is, how much truth is there to that statement? I immediately started thinking, the very first time I just heard the soundtrack to this, one of the things that started running through my mind was the whole thing, since he would, since he brought Star Trek into it, yeah. I'm like, what about the Prime Directive? You see, there are reasons not to interfere with unreached people groups. Part of the Prime Directive was to not fuck with the progression of a culture. You know, you're not supposed to, you're not supposed to reveal yourselves to them. They're supposed to develop their, their culture and their way of doing things naturally, right. not with outside help. And I think religion actually applies in this situation because we're talking about going into places that already have established cultures and ways of doing things. And now these pasty white people from someplace that they've never been show up in their midst and say, uh, 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 no, this is not the way that you need to think about this. You need to think about it this way. Now imagine it's you in that situation and someone barges into your house and starts telling you that the way that you've arranged your furniture is fucky. It wouldn't work. They wouldn't be welcome. And in a lot of cases, they're not. Missionaries aren't wanted right. where they go. But the problem there is that whether they're wanted or not, there are things about missions work that I don't think a lot of people understand. And it's tolerated a whole lot more than I think it would be if the missionaries and the organizations that send those missionaries didn't provide the levels of help that they provide in some areas because one of the number i think the number one problem with missions is that it creates a sense of dependence that also escalates into resentment and i'll get into how in just a few minutes but i did come across an interesting article this is a theist source but it's definitely a liberal look at this subject and you know what? I think I like the way they look at this, at least as that statement relates to this specific thought. Not everything they had to say was great, but I like this part. Doing things for people isn't always the best way to make an impact. This is a theist organization talking about missions. And I had to read it a couple of times to make sure that that's what they were saying. But then when you look at the next couple paragraphs, which I'm going to read right now, you understand what they're talking about. Last year, I had an insightful conversation with a 20-something Peruvian in which I asked him his candid opinion on groups of gringos who come to his shantytown. He told me, quote, we know we're going to receive something, unquote. He knows visiting missionaries usually give gifts, repair things, or provide some sort of service, and he casually admitted that this can lead to people in his community developing a sense of expectation and sometimes entitlement. You know, like when you yeah. feed the stray mm -hmm. and now you can't get rid of it. Well, these people don't want to get rid of it because it makes them look good. The strays actually make them look good. Back to the quote, this made me wonder if we were truly making disciples or creating a culture that expects us to provide things for them and do them favors. It's worth knowing ahead of time if the help you want to offer is truly needed, and I'll add wanted, where you're planning to go. If physical labor is needed, how can you work alongside locals to build their community? That's a problem in yeah. missions, is that no one wants to work alongside. They all want to be the heroes. Yeah. That's problematic. And one last little bit here. Sometimes teaching something like first aid or new marketable job skills is more helpful so you can help locals learn skills they can use to support their families and their community. 
empowerment makes a bigger impact than only doing something for the locals. And I think that's very, very true. That comes from an article from Relevant Magazine, again, at the source, but I think in this instance, a pretty good one. Yeah. Many people who receive aid and services from missionaries often agree with them about religion as a means of keeping the help coming. And that's the real problem right there. This is where they trap people into at least outward expressions of faith. Because you can get people to say anything. Yeah. If they're starving and you have food, you can get them to say or agree to anything. Yeah. And that's what happens a lot of times. If they so much as show up for church and church-related activities, the mission will be considered a success and help will continue and they know it. At least in a lot of cases, that's the way that it goes. If the people are bad enough off, they'll agree to basically anything. And that's when the quid pro quo part of the equation is simple. What about when it isn't? That's the real question. What happens when a people group really, really doesn't want outsiders there trying to sell them their religion or anything else for that matter? Well, we found out fairly recently, didn't we? This is, I'm going back to The Guardian for this one, and I love this article. It's, it's a lengthy article that I think everybody should definitely read to understand a little bit more about this particular situation and the person who was involved. But just a brief quote here. In November 2018, on an obscure island in the Indian Ocean, John Chow, a 26-year-old American adventure blogger. I love how they introduce him here. Yeah. A 26-year-old American adventure blogger beef jerky marketer and evangelical missionary was killed by the isolated tribe he was attempting to convert to Christianity. That's one rather long sentence, <laughs> like I don't fire off longer. And it's also the most evangelical thing I read researching this, to be honest. Chow had an obsession with, well, a bunch of things, but in particular, Robinson Crusoe. He and his brother used to play games revolving around warring natives, complete with war paint made from wild blackberry juice. And that was an idea he got from another literary source, The Sign of the Beaver by Elizabeth George Spear. Survival and adventure stories in general were a real draw for him. Hatchet by Gary Paulson was another one that he liked. Anything that had against all odds kinds of themes really inspired him. And that inspiration eventually turned to an obsession. Quote, he came to count as heroes the naturalist John Muir, the explorer missionary David Livingstone, and Bruce Olson, famous in the missionary community for converting the Barry people of South America. What I found interesting was how many churches and church organizations instantly turned on him and just how hypocritical it seemed to me that they would turn on him because... Yeah. After all, what he did was evangelical missions in a nutshell. He was going somewhere where he wasn't wanted. And he did it with this sense of entitlement the size of Texas. And I mean, who cares if it was illegal? And it was. For him to go to this island was flat out illegal. But he had a burden for the Sentinelese people. He threw some fish at them and they threw back some arrows. Yeah. Still... This gospel will be preached to every tribe and tongue and nation on earth, and then the end will come. And I like this next quote a lot, too, because it seems like his father had a little bit more of a level head on his shoulders than he did. Yeah. Chow's father believes the American missionary community is culpable in his son's death. 
John was an innocent child, his father said, who died from an extreme vision of Christianity taken to its logical conclusion. I could never have put it better myself, and I'm Mm. amazed that a grieving father could. He obviously had thought about this quite a bit. But the question that I have is whether or not it's really that extreme or just a product of the way that these people think about everything. So I guess that's where the logical conclusion part of this comes into play, because that is the way that they think, and that's the way that they taught his kid to think. And it's very, very tragic. But, you know, we talked last week about the whole black and white thinking that permeates evangelical thought. And that was where John Chow was. I have to reach these people, no matter what the law says, or even what the people may want. I have Jesus. I have what they need. I know better than they do what they need. And I have to preach the gospel to them. That's what was going on in his head when he was planning this whole thing. Another thing to keep in mind is that in evangelical circles, evangelism is mandatory. It has to happen. It's mandated five times in the New Testament. I just read one. The one that most people go to is Matthew 28, 19. But it's in there five times. Every one of the Gospels and in the book of Acts, Christ followers are told to do the same thing. Go out into the world and convert the shit out of it. That's basically it. Um, and this guy's brainless zeal was very familiar. You know, just looking at pictures of him, I've seen that expression many, many, many times on people's faces. That vacant, no room for anything in my head but Jesus kind of look. And I think that anyone who's been in this for more than five minutes will look at the pictures in that article and understand precisely what I'm talking about when they see pictures of this guy. Not a rational, grown-up, non-fantastical thought going on in this guy's head. He was part of an organization called All Nations, which obviously lauded him as a martyr. The privilege of sharing the gospel has often involved great cost, said Dr. Mary Ho, the organization's leader. We pray that John's sacrificial efforts will bear eternal fruit in due season, except they won't, because he's dead. And he doesn't exist anymore. And he has no recollection of anything that he's done. And when I look at some of those pictures and some of the things that he did and some of the things that he experienced and just understand that if he had done any of that stuff just for its own sake, that he would still be around. He would still be alive. He'd still be able to do these things. Yeah. If he didn't have this overreaching obsession with saving this one group of people. The Sentinelese became a huge obsession for him, and that's what led to this. The uh, All Nations organization tried to justify what he did by, well, at least in part, pointing out that he'd had 13 immunizations. You know, we were going to do this in the safest way possible. And before I go any further, since we already talked about COVID tonight, I'm going to add my two cents on this. This person got 13 vaccines, 13 vaccines to go antagonize a primitive tribe. And yet some of the same people who laud this idiot as a hero still aren't vaccinated against Mm COVID-19. It just, I mean, just savor the hypocrisy. Yeah. But this was apparently good enough for the crazies who sent him on his mission. The fact that he had had 13 immunizations, only one problem. As usual, they trusted what Jesus was telling them over what actual experts in the field of international infectious disease had to say. 
All of those vaccines weren't enough to ensure the Sentinelese tribe's people's safety. And let's be real. The only reason this guy got 13 vaccines is because they were all mandatory to travel to the places that would put him at the correct vantage point to go to North Sentinel Island. You think he really gave a fuck? No. Otherwise, no. Because if he was going there as a representative of God, then God was going to take care of him and everybody else that he reached out to because God wanted to save them, not harm them. So I guarantee you that if he didn't need to get those vaccines, he wouldn't have. He was told to get them so he could travel. And that was it. And another aside about that, 13 jabs, 13 jabs to save an indigenous tribe that's just hanging around minding its own business with no need in life of anyone else's aid, assistance, or religious nuttery. But putting on a mask or getting two jabs, just two, to literally save the life of the cashier at the grocery store is too much for some of this person's fans. Chow actually went away to boot camp. There was a boot camp for this put on by the all nations organization to learn how to be a missionary and i just i'm i'm looking at this and i'm like for real you actually did this there is an organization probably more probably quite a few who do shit like this yeah another little quote one of the boot camps exercises the new york times reported involved navigating a mock village peopled by missionaries pretending to be hostile natives with fake spears. Cue a few racial stereotypes. Mm. All Nations leader Mary Ho told the Times that Chow was one of the best trainees the program ever had. Because, of course, he was. Of course. Um, I'm just sitting here picturing a bunch of obviously white people trying to simulate an attack by primitive natives on an island, having no cultural reference, no intel about their defense or militaristic tactics and abilities, and clearly no way to stage a battle that would begin to prepare anyone to deal with hostiles in the fucking mission field. Hostiles in the mission field. It's Those two things don't sound like they should go together, but they do. They do. And in a huge number of cases, they do. Chow referred to the tribe on North Sentinel Island as, quote, Satan's last stronghold. Oh, thank goodness he wasn't being too overdramatic or anything. Really? What on earth had they done? Mind their own business? What kind of pawn is this place in Satan's master plan? Jesus fucking Christ, they're far from the last unreached people group out there. So why would he say such a thing about them? Why would he think such a thing about them? Because he was obsessed with them and the notion of, quote unquote, saving them. Another quote from the article, Chow's decision to contact the Sentinelese, who have made it clear over the years that they prefer to be left alone, was indefensibly reckless. But it wasn't a spontaneous act of recklessness by a dim-witted thrill-seeker. It was a premeditated act of recklessness by a fairly intelligent and thoughtful thrill-seeker, who spent years preparing and understood the risks, including to his own life. Chow had three things working against him as far as I'm concerned. First, he was AG. And that to me is major, major strike one. He was the equivalent of an Eagle Scout in Royal Rangers. Okay, so again, no, no sense of normalcy from childhood on. So that's strike one. He was AG and had been pretty much from birth. And if there's one thing that I can say about the Assemblies of God is that their drive for missions 
is beyond aggressive. And I will get into that a little bit more in a few minutes too. Chow was also the product of Christian education from elementary school through college, having attended ORU as an undergrad, strike two. And like our friend Arnold Cunningham, he had a wildly overactive imagination and seemed to be trying to live vicariously through every underdog in every piece of adventure fiction he'd ever read, strike three. He loved camping and other rugged outdoor survivalist activities and seemed to see himself as a sort of Indiana Jones with a savior complex. His story paints a picture of someone who had been fueling an obsession for years. I recommend reading this article in, in fall if you want to know more about John Chow, but I'm going to leave his story there, at least for now, and talk a little bit about something that I know, the Assemblies of God and missions. All AG churches that want to stay AG allocate a percentage of donations to two general missionary accounts, home missions and world missions. Those accounts deliver funds to individual missionaries on an as-needed basis or as stipends when they visit the church. Some funds also go to organizations like AIM, and that stands for Ambassadors in Mission. Many churches also have individual missionaries they directly support with agreed-upon percentages of tithe revenues or real whole dollar amounts, and they also get a dip from the proceeds from the monthly missions offering, which is spread out among all of those different uh, places. Right. Then there's uh, the Assemblies of God World Missions, which is all their overseas work. And it's a large organization. The Assemblies of God sends a lot of missionaries. Then there's the Assemblies of God U.S. Missions, or what they used to call home missions when we were in. I think this is the same thing at this point. And they may even still use that same terminology. And I know the diehards probably still use the same terminology. Yeah. But a big part of U.S. missions is church planting. So we used to hear all the time about how our church is a home missions church. And that means that they got money from uh, the general council to be able to start this church. And a lot of times the pastoral positions in these churches are seated with missionaries who basically couldn't hack it in the mission field. Right. It was either that or they didn't want to send these people back due to the costs or other factors. You know, usually right. usually it was that they were going a little bit crazy out on the field and they had skills in terms of ministry, but they needed something just a little bit more cushy. Yeah. So they bring them home and they convince them, okay, you know what, we can work on getting you back over there, but we know that you didn't like it very much. How would you like to just stay stateside? Because our district has several home missions churches that could really use a pastor. So that a lot of times is what happens. Missionaries who are burnt out take a little bit of a hiatus and then they just stay here and they pastor small churches where they don't have a huge congregation or a lot of responsibility and they can chalk it up to success if they get their tithes up to where they're supposed to be. And yeah, that is literally how it works. The success is gauged by how many people you get through the door and keep them through the door and how much money they give. That's what success is calculated by. Yeah. One that I think was just a little bit uh, underhanded and, and somewhere between underhanded and nefarious was Speed the Light. And that was the youth missions program in the Assemblies of God. We had to hear pitches for this every single year at convention. We heard about it in church. 
I don't think I was ever actively involved in anything for Speed the Light, which, you know, it surprises me because it was very pervasive. But it was brought up in youth group meetings. It was brought up in sectional rallies all the way up the line, right up to the annual convention where it was really, really driven home. And yeah, we're talking about an organization that tries to siphon money out of the pockets of teenagers. Yeah. I mean, they, they have no shame. They have literally have no shame. And I still can't tell you how much of that money actually goes to where they say it's going. Because, you know, when you give to your local church and you're a member of that church, you get to see those numbers at the end of the year. But any money you just give at an event like youth convention, there's no way that you can actually trace where that money went. So they're taking money out of the pockets of underage people. Mm Mm-hmm. And doing whatever the fuck with it. Yeah. You just don't know. You have no clue. Then there was the annual missions conference, which was something that they really plugged at school. Yeah. But it was also a local church thing as well. And here's what the the annual missions conference actually was. The annual missions conference was little more than a bunch of missionaries competing for people's love offerings. That's it. The better the story the more likely it was to result in support. They had the nerve to sick at least five of these people on us every year at school, and they all proceeded to hit up broke college students for cash. Yeah. So, yeah, they really, really like to tug at your heartstrings and get you to give money that's just going to vanish off into the ether. Because, you know, I never saw a wealthy missionary out there. They always all seem to be struggling whether it was legit or whether or not it was just sob stories i get the impression that in most cases it was somewhere in the middle and usually more toward the toward the end of yeah we really do have it this bad (laughs) because of the way that they're treated and kind of discarded when they go overseas especially if they're not seeing the results that the organization wants them to achieve and you know there are different kinds of missions work out there you know you can you don't need a degree to be a missionary no. but it's preferred in the assemblies of god and they have all kinds of bible colleges that will be happy to grant you a degree in missions so that you can be considered yeah. above someone who has less experience and practical knowledge that sort of thing but short term missions trips include things like aim ambassadors in mission and local outreaches. Now, I never did an AIM trip. I never did an overseas AIM trip. But the outreaches that we did were also considered AIM because that's where the money came from. It yeah. came from AIM dollars to be able to put those things on. So technically, I was involved with AIM, but I never left the United States. It was usually Poughkeepsie. Okay. Yeah. We did outreaches in Poughkeepsie. We did outreaches in New York. We did one outreach in Ellenville, New York. That was it. Um, but those were the only ones that I was ever involved in. And those were short term, usually one day. And short term can also mean a week, which is usually your, your, your average overseas aim trip is usually a week or two weeks and sometimes three weeks, depending on where you're going and what the assignment is. I think the longest one that I saw was three weeks and they went to Spain. There were a couple of trips to Germany that were two weeks long. And that's what you get when you go on an overseas aim trip. That's the short term mission. I know that my mom's husband also went to Zambia. And 
one thing that I always found interesting, going back to the 80s and seeing how they did things, seeing how they, they drummed up their support, most AG missionaries to this day yeah. have literal PR portfolios. Yep. Okay, They have public relations packets that they leave with churches and that they hand out to people at church services so that they can see the work that's being done. I don't know. You know, I, I never looked deep enough into this to figure out how they accomplish this. I assume the AG has their own photographers and videographers that will go over there and follow them for a little while and make what they're doing look good. Yeah. Um, there's that part of it. But it always impressed upon me. Like, it felt like they were running for office. Yeah. You know, they had all of this, all, all these really sleek and polished pictures of themselves looking very American and not at all run down by the work of the mission field, not even a little bit. No. Oh, no, these were beautiful people in beautiful pictures so that when it came time for you to decide whether or not you were going to donate to them again this month, you'd look at their picture on your refrigerator and say, oh, what a beautiful family. Yes, let's just keep sending them money. That was most of the point of it. This is back before the internet and before anything was digital. Yeah. And most missionaries spend a lot of money trying to raise money. That's the ironic part of this. And you know what? It's economics and business 101. You have to spend to earn. I get that. It's definitely true. But, you know, when you're a family and you're already struggling, you know, it, it's not that simple. No. You know, when I was doing uh, content marketing full time, I had a little bit of a draw that I could use to buy ads until we started making the ad revenue. And then I just put that money back into the business over and over and over again. But in a situation like this, I don't think that it works the same way. I don't no. think that they have anywhere near the opportunities to grab those dollars. So a lot of them are in financial straits before they put together those fucking portfolios. Yeah. And they're pressured into doing it. They tried to pressure us into getting professional pictures when I was trying to get my credentials with the assemblies. I... They didn't like the pictures that I sent because apparently they didn't jibe with the image that the AG was trying to portray. So we were told, I was told, this was one of the final nails in the coffin. I was told that we needed to get better pictures taken. And I mean, we, we had nothing at that yeah. point. We were as broke as broke gets. And now I'm supposed to go to a professional photographer because you don't like the quality of the picture I sent you, well, guess what? These people go through the same thing. Yeah. But their drive is so intense to get out there into the mission field and do what they're quote-unquote called to do. A lot of them find themselves in some serious financial straits as a result. And I personally think that that's kind of horrible. Um, kind of? It's, it's yeah, just it's it's horrible. It is horrible. And, I mean, we're talking about things like portfolios, hotels, rental cars, meals. Some of them, when they come into town, when they come back stateside, some of them do get housed and fed by people in the church. I know I was responsible for making some of those arrangements for traveling ministers and missionaries and whatnot. So some churches do do that for them. But it's not a home and there's no privacy. Yeah. And if they have a large family, it's very difficult to find someone who wants to house a family. You know, right. housing a guest speaker is one thing. Housing a missionary couple 
and their four kids. That's an entirely different story. So it's hard to put together. So what happens? A lot of times they live in a hotel because they literally have nothing else here. Yeah. And I mean, I think about the kids in those situations and the fact that they have no chance at a normal childhood. No chance whatsoever nope. to have any semblance of normalcy in their life. And, you know, it's infuriating because these people are so drunk on the Kool-Aid that just like John Chow, they're more motivated to save people halfway across the world than they are to see to their own families. Yeah. And that's a problem. And the other thing that I used to notice when these people would come to church is that they use the same guilt tactics as other traveling ministry groups. It always amazed me the level of calamity that these traveling ministries endured just to get to you to present this message so that maybe one person in the audience might get saved tonight. Yeah. Well, it's kind of the same thing with missionaries, but instead it's this is the shit that we go through in the hopes that we'll save one person in this tiny little country that doesn't want us there. And the sob stories are the same. They just have a slight redirect, and that's it. And another thing worth noting is that missionaries at least sometimes and I, I don't think this happens terribly often but more often than it should they sometimes do things that are illegal well what kinds of things well for starters they like to smuggle bibles and religious literature into countries where it's not welcome right. and that's been a thing I, i've i've been approached i was back in the day approached to support a group that was responsible for doing this very thing it's like, okay, so now I'm an accessory to a crime because I gave them money. Um, yeah. No, you, you, can't, you can't just go wherever you want and just start chucking Bibles everywhere. And there was a group that found this out firsthand. An article here from uh, CNN.com. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but the link is in the show notes. And basically, it's an article about a group of U.S. basically missionaries who were stopped at the airport and had 300 Bibles confiscated and like a bunch of toddlers refused to leave. Yeah. And, you know, I'm sorry, but you're in their house. And China is a communist country. They don't want these things in the country. And honestly, when I learned this, it actually surprised me. But, you know, China, it's not that they have a problem with you having a Bible. It's that they have a problem with the religion being marketed. That's the problem. You can have a Bible in your house. You can read the Bible as literature. They don't care about that. But the instant you bring it across their borders and start trying to proselytize people with it, that's where they step in. You know, I'm, I'm amazed that the Chinese government put up with it the way that they did. The article's out there, too. I'm not going to get too far into that. But just for the sake of example, they do that. And the other thing that they'll do is... They'll establish secret churches and start having secret meetings in places where the church is legitimately being persecuted. And yeah, there are places in the world where Christianity and religion in general is kind of hotly persecuted. It's not as big of an issue as the Assemblies of God would like to make it out to be, but it is an issue. And putting yourself at that kind of risk is just, its to me, it's nutsy cuckoo. And another thing that I noticed about the missionaries that used to visit church and the ones that used to visit at school is that they rarely had positive uplifting stories about personal experiences, but they did manage to pull out those hero's tales. And, 
you know, some of these people, they'll run with the same story and build an entire ministry and make all of their money off of the same story for years. They may not keep saying what year these things happened, but they'll keep recounting the same story because it's 99.9% humdrum. And here's the one note of excitement that has been part of this experience for us. So they tell it and they tell it in an enthusiastic way and it inspires people and wallets open. Mm -hmm. That's basically it. And as I was just mulling over the details that I wanted to remember to put in this episode, I started thinking about the guy who was our missionary in residence at Valley Forge the first year that I was there. So this would have been your junior year, but he came in the same year I did as a freshman. I think, I think they got a new one every year. Yeah. If memory serves, the missionary in residence thing was yeah. a one-year position, and then they brought in somebody else. Right. But the guy my first year, I will never forget this guy. Tall, lanky, drink of water. Um, honestly, I say I'll never forget him, but I definitely have forgotten his name. Mm-hmm. I could find it. I'm sure he's in the yearbook if I really cared. But the listeners don't, so I'm not going to bother. He was an interesting sort of dude. We had one class that we had to take on missions. It was Intro to Missions. Right. And there were a couple of others that I think I might have... Uh, no, actually, no. There, I think there were a couple. There were a couple of missions uh, classes that we had to take. Because now that I'm thinking about it, I can remember at least two yeah. that I had to take. But this one was Intro to Missions. And I can remember this guy telling all kinds of stories and not really getting around to anything that was in the textbook. If we wanted to pass the tests, it was kind of up to us to read the textbooks ourselves. I never did great with written tests, at least not then. I've gotten better with them. But back then, I wasn't great with written tests. And I also wasn't great at reading a bunch of shit that I wasn't interested in. So reading a couple of books about missions when missions wasn't my major really wasn't my thing. But I still managed to do pretty well on some of these tests. And on one notable occasion, and this this is where the love and compassion and understanding and care for your fellow human beings comes in, okay? I remember I got an 89 on a test. It was, no, it was an 89 point something, I think. And this, this dude, he loved to give the score that you got. So he wouldn't round it at all. So if there was an odd number of questions on the test and you scored an 89.6, that's what you got. Yep. And I remember going to him and thinking to myself, okay, this, this is my first semester. An A in anything is going to help me a lot here. So I was literally four-tenths of a point off from an A on this test. I go to this guy and I ask him, we're within four-tenths of a point here. Do you suppose you could float me my A? And this guy literally looked at me and said, if you had earned an A, you would have gotten it. And this is somebody who is supposed to be spending his time in the mission field, exercising and teaching other people about love, grace, and compassion. Yeah. And that has stuck with me from that day till this, because it shattered any image that I may have had of AG missionary work. Because if this is representative of the kind of things that you start thinking when you've been in the mission field for a little while, then why would I ever want my brain to go down that path? Mm. Because there's no 
possible way that I would give someone an 89.6 and not just say, fuck it, and round it to a 90. Yeah. There's no possible way as a college professor or as just someone who considers himself to be a decent human being. It's the decent thing to do. But no, I got my B plus because I was off by four tenths of a point. And that's something that I will never forget, especially in in the context of what this guy did for his living and just the fact that he should have understood a couple of concepts like compassion a little bit better. Now, another thing that I found interesting back in the day, and it came up in my research again in in the last few days while I was putting this show together, is that home missions has always gotten better results, especially in the HA. Well, you know, there's a reason for that. It's because there's cultural relatability here. If you keep it stateside, you have more of an opportunity to reach people because they already understand you from a linguistic standpoint. They understand the way you think because they're Westerners also. And it makes a huge difference. When you set your sights on home missions, Jesus isn't a foreign, impossible-to-understand concept. People get saved in droves in home missions projects. Overseas, it's a much slower, less fruitful effort given the costs involved in sending missionaries there. And the fruitlessness of it and the difficulty of it leads a lot of missionaries to just decide to come home. And they come home for they come home for that reason. They also come home because they run out of money. Yeah. Many missionaries come home for years at a time, and they struggle to raise the funds that they need to go back into the mission field. Most of them don't have any marketable skills, and many wind up in precarious living situations when they're forced to return stateside. You see, one of the guys that I met first year decided that he was going to take a year off because he was a missions major and he decided to take a year off to go to trade school. He said, I need to learn a skill. I need something to fall back on here. My father will be very disappointed if I don't succeed at this, but he'll be more disappointed if I have to come crawling back to him for help. Yeah. So he took a year off and went out and learned some kind of trade. And I guess something changed or he went someplace else because I never saw him again. I think that he just understood the concept of if I do this, I will make money and I'll be able to live and I'll be able to survive. If I do this, who the fuck knows? Yeah. So I think that was most of it, but he had the right idea. But those of us who get shoved into going to Bible college and into full-time ministry, we are not encouraged to have that safety net. We are encouraged to just dive in with both feet and just do this. Well, at least this guy had a little bit more of a head on his shoulders. And I, like I've said before, many times I was a pretty smart person. But even at that point in my life, I respected his decision, but I didn't think that it was necessary for me because I was going to be successful. And I guarantee you that there are plenty of missionaries that get very gung-ho about the work that they're about to go out and do, and they start thinking the exact same things. Yeah, maybe it wouldn't be a bad idea to have something to fall back on, but why do I need it? I've been called into this, and God is going to help me, and God is going to make sure that I have what I need. (sighs) Yeah. Yep. (laughs) It's really frustrating. You know, because these people want to do this work, but it's hard to live. It can be impossible to live. Yeah. And some of them don't survive. 
there's an insane number of missionaries who die on the mission field, not because they encounter hostiles, but because the environment is so hostile or they get sick and they rely on God to cure them or they rely on the primitive medicines that exist where they are to get them back on their feet. And sometimes they just don't. Yeah. Missionaries usually also have larger than average families. And when they come home, they often end up on a half a dozen sources of public assistance because they simply aren't qualified for any job that involves skilled labor. There we go again. This leaves lucrative money-making options like retail, Mm. food service, custodial services, and other equally glamorous, low-paying, and often part-time jobs. Now, I'm not downplaying anyone who does any of these things for a living. All I'm saying is that, and and I think it goes without saying, that for the level of output that you have to give to these jobs, you're not making a whole hell of a lot. No. And most people, even even in any kind of position these days, most people can't afford to live on their own. And when you factor in the nature of a lot of these jobs and the fact that so few of them are actually full-time with benefits, now consider that you've got a missionary family that needs to keep food on their table. And you've got both parents that are working. And in some places, if your family is big enough, you still qualify for public assistance, like WIC, even welfare in some instances, with both of them working full-time. If they've got five or six kids, and it happens because there aren't a whole lot of drugstores out there in uh, in the wild, wherever they are doing their missionary work, they don't have access to things like birth control and probably have been taught not to use it anyway. Right. So they got these huge families, and now they come home, and they can't drum up the support that they need to go back so they will literally spend years here and just dig themselves deeper and deeper and deeper into a financial hole that they can't get themselves out of and that ironically enough no one is going to come to their aid to get them out of it's also interesting to note that the united states sends more missionaries than any other country with more than half of those missionaries coming from the lds church or the mormons The other half comes largely from, you guessed it, evangelical Protestant denominations. The Catholic Church also sends a large quorum, but the AG, oddly enough, still has them beat, at least in terms of what we define as missions in this conversation. The AG has them beat. And this information, at least part of it, comes from Reuters. Uh, 130,000 missionaries, just from the U.S. alone, were sent in the year 2010. These are older statistics but they hold up. The most visible are the Mormons at 70,000 per year. So just over half in 2010. What's interesting about that is that there's like a pretty big network here of organizations that do nothing but send missionaries. They're kind of like working through an employment agency. I did a lot of that when I was in IT. And I would get assigned different jobs in different places. Well, this is basically the same thing. Organizations that kind of match missionaries with places in the mission field where they might be most effective. And here's just a, another, another brief quote from the Guardian article. A large and sophisticated apparatus exists to assist Americans interested in proselytizing. The un- 
The universe includes organizations like World Venture, which provides support services, training, and life insurance for missionaries, and Wycliffe, which is working to translate the Bible into every language on Earth. Databases such as People Groups and the Joshua Project gather information on what evangelicals call, quote, unreached people groups. So they have data mining operations where they figure out where there's the most, quote unquote, need, and they start sending people there. Just an interesting little aside, I actually considered being a Wycliffe translator for about 30 seconds when I was in college. (laughs) It looked interesting. It looks like it would be a really fulfilling kind of thing to do. But I also knew that I wanted to work with younger people and I wanted to be more active in a church setting. I didn't want to sit at a desk and translate. Right. But at the time, I found what Wycliffe was doing to be really interesting. And at least it would give my, my brain something to do. Yeah. That was one of the major things that drew me to it was that I would be able to use my brain a little bit more. Yeah. If I did something like that. Yeah, that's important. It is, but the problem is that it wasn't my calling. Yeah. And that really was the bottom line. So we're starting to wind down a little bit here. I want to just use the last few minutes of our conversation tonight to talk directly to some of the people who are in our audience, who may be involved in missions, who may still be giving to missions, whatever the case may be. I'm just going to tell it straight. I have a friend, and I've mentioned her before, and I don't know if she still considers me a friend, but this is someone that I knew back in the day when we were both teenagers, and she, to this day, credits me with making the decision to go off into the mission field, and she's been in Africa, she's been in Kenya for well over 20 years now, and not for nothing, but every few weeks I get a single download from Kenya. Mm. And I have to wonder, because if that's you, I'll say the same thing that I said a bunch of episodes ago, in case you haven't listened to all of them, but I'm guessing you probably have. You know, if it bothers you that I was that involved with your decision to do this, you also have the option of following me out. And I really do think that you should. You know what? I also get that this is your life and that it's been your life for so long. And I'm going to address any other missionaries that are listening to me right now also at this point. I get that you have given a huge chunk of your life to this, but I'm going to just make this one appeal. Come home. Okay. You know, whether you've been out there for a year or 20 years, it's not going to be easy either way. But has it been easy up until now? Have the good experiences outweighed the bad? What good have you actually done? What measurable results can you see for the work that you're doing? How is what you're doing actually making people's lives better? I'm not trying to attack you. I'm just trying to get you to think a little bit more reasonably and rationally about this. What have you accomplished since you made this decision? Because if you really break it down to brass tacks, it probably isn't that much. You are probably getting more out of it personally than the people that you're over there trying to help because that's just the way that this works. To former missionaries who couldn't afford to go back and that's the only reason why you didn't go back, first and foremost, I want to tell you, 
you didn't fail. Your church failed you. And when I think about situations like yours, I think about sitting around that table in that board meeting at, at Mission Impossible. And if you don't know what that is, episode 11, and having these people tell me that they were committed to my success and then spending the next year proving to me that they were not. So I guarantee you that this is something that happens in a lot of churches and it happens to people who are out in the mission field and they go with the expectation that there's going to be backing and support and then they get none or next to none in the reality of things because when a church board says we're committed to your success, it could mean any number of things and it could be said with any degree of sincerity or lack thereof. To former missionaries who decided not to go back, let me tell you, you did the right thing. Don't feel guilty because that voice in your head that said this isn't accomplishing what I wanted to accomplish was right. And you have every reason to trust your instincts about things like this, even if it means turning your back on your vocation, because guess what? I did and we made it. Okay. We still own our house. Yeah. We've never been homeless. We've never been without a car. We've never had a car repossessed. And there have been very, very lean times for us in this house. And before we had this house, there were some very oh, yeah. lean times, but we've always figured things out. I'm not going to tell you that it'll be easy. It will probably be pretty hard. And you're probably already seeing that hard is okay. But never, ever think that if you just go back to what you were doing before, that things will stabilize because they won't, because you know that what you were doing there was not effective to the extent that it was doing what you hoped it would do in people's lives. And if that's the case, then you're better off here. Figure out what your next move is going to be, but stop thinking about going back into the mission field. And now a group that I really, really, really have a soft spot for. To those of you who are in Bible college right now and studying to get a degree in missions, I have three words for you. Drop out now. I'm sorry to be so blunt. And I'm sorry if it sounds a little bit cold and heartless because I know what it's like to have that zeal of a new calling and wanting so badly and desperately for this to work out. But let me tell you something, it's not gonna work out. It's not going to be the rosy thing that your professors are making it out to be. They'll tell you so many things in Bible college about how great the ministry is and about how great every facet of ministry is. And this is what's gonna happen. These are the ways that you're going to be helped when you're out on the mission field. These are the funds that are available. This is what churches do. And they'll tell you so many things, but they don't consider any of the variables that are at play with that. How big is the church that's sending you there? What guarantee is there that their tithes are going to stay at a level where they can keep sending you the same amount of money every single year? And guess what? You won't need the same amount of money every year. You will need more. And usually what's going to happen is you're going to get less yeah. and it's going to get harder and harder and harder until you are forced to come back before you throw your entire life and vocation away on something like this, please drop out, 
get a degree in something that's actually going to pull a paycheck or do what my friend did and learn some kind of skill where you can make some real money. At that point, if you're still insistent on thinking about this, then at least you know that you have some kind of a fallback plan. If you are in Bible college with no fallback plan, get out and figure out how you're going to make money when your church and the people who are supposed to be supporting you, everyone who took one of your pictures and made a pledge, when those pledges don't come in in the amounts that you're expecting, you're going to need something. So please consider that. As someone who has watched this scenario play out more than once, I can tell you, you're in a bad place if you don't have something to fall back on. And just as a little fun bit to round things off, I thought it would be interesting to mention that if you are a former missionary, if you have just interest in doing missions work, but you're kind of on the other side of this equation now, and you're on your way out of evangelical faith, and you're wondering, well, what can I still do in this capacity? It might surprise you to learn that there are organizations out there that actually do real good in the world, that are in places where they're wanted, and that can actually help you really honestly and truly make a difference in people's lives. I got a couple of links in the show notes, but we're talking about organizations that have an established professional and cooperative presence in the places that they serve. In short, they're wanted where they are. They aren't pushing their religion on anyone. They perform real services and they have real benefit to people. There are short and long-term projects and they all accomplish way more than any evangelical missions project ever will. So as a final thought on this, no matter if you've been a missionary, are a missionary, or are studying to be, or are thinking about being a missionary, my advice to you is going to be the same. Don't. You don't enrich someone else's life by pushing a religion on them that they don't want and probably can't fully understand. You don't help them by building dysfunctional structures and going home. You don't help anyone by forcing them to lie and pretend to be something they aren't so that they can eat tomorrow or get needed medicines and provisions. The people reached via evangelical missions often secretly resent the missionaries that keep them fed and well, and I can absolutely see why. It isn't a lack of gratitude. It's a lack of desire to be dependent upon you or your religion to stay alive. Keep in mind that you promise these people freedom in Christ, but you have no problem making them live in bondage to your religion to ensure their needs keep getting met. Does that seem right to you? Does it seem right to break the law, to smuggle Bibles into countries that don't want them there? What is the point of risking your life running underground ministries that could get you arrested or worse? I'm sorry, those people in China, very, very, very lucky. That things didn't go a different direction. Mm. And what good does it do to force your love on a people group that doesn't want it? As someone experienced in trying to love someone who didn't want it, I can tell you it's pointless and you should stop. And, you know, I'm sorry, but what makes you think that you can go anywhere you want and force your religion on anyone you want? Oh, wait, 
that's right. Uh, never mind. That's a, that's a dumb question. Your religion, your pastor, every missionary who ever showed up in your church for missions conferences put those thoughts in your head. So, yeah, never mind. And here's the crazy part. If you've been in this your entire life, you probably have no conception of what's wrong with any of that. And if you do, your pastor hasn't been doing his job. It's that simple. So let's allay the judgment for a minute. And let's see if I can express this concept just a little bit more objectively as we close. I'm not trying to attack missionaries or shame them for doing the very things they've been led to believe necessary for the sake of the gospel. I get that part. Because if John Chow's story is any indicator, this drive to bring the gospel to new places can be very intense. This is all about conditioning, usually from a very young age. John Chow lived in the Kool-Aid. He was guzzling it by the gallon every single day from his Christian school upbringing to four years at ORU. And all of that, coupled with a very overactive imagination, are what brought him to this pointless and untimely end. And while his is an extreme example of the arrogance that drives much of evangelical missions, this vocation has stolen countless lives, deprived children of normal, stable upbringings, disrupted cultures and other religions, insulted people's heritages, and have placed many in situations where they must either pretend to accept Christianity or starve. Would you be comfortable living a lie? If not, it's time to either come home, stay home, or flee from that college that's indoctrinating you into throwing your entire life away on things that have precious little positive impact on the world. And if you support missionary work, that goes for you too. Think about whether or not you want to support things like socioeconomic slavery and international crime. Is that a little too alarmist? It would be if it wasn't true, but it is. And with all due respect, we deal with blunt force honesty around here. Start really looking at what missions work is and what it really accomplishes. Start looking objectively at the real impact missions has on impoverished nations and cultures. It's important to understand what it does to the people it touches and that there are better and far more selfless ways to help people in need. But isn't missions work selfless though? Ask the kids who came home from the AIM trip, who spent two hours on that platform talking about how the trip impacted them. Not the people they were there to minister to, but them. It's so subtle how they sneak that thinking in, isn't it? And that's why we're here. And that's why we keep calling it out. Because the more you understand, the closer you come to getting and staying unbound. hope you enjoyed this episode of Unbound. Show topics are chosen based on their timeliness, relevance, and social impact. Have suggestions for future topics? Email us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com with all your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to like, share, and throw a few five-star ratings our way and follow us on all major social platforms. And don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already. Links to our social pages as well as a full list of cited sources in today's episode are listed in the show notes available at our website, getunbound.org. That's get-unbound.org. If you value this resource and would like to see it continue, please consider supporting us on Patreon at the link in the show description. And be sure to check for new updates every Sunday when we'll come together again and take one more step toward getting and staying unbound. Unbound.